Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 14 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, May the 6th. First, I'll be talking to Russell Martin, co-founder and CTO of digital expense platform DiviPay, who will share his five big lessons that small businesses can learn from. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about his forecast for the market in the week ahead. But now let's talk to Russell Mark. Okay, well, Russell, tell us how does DiviPay work? Well, DiviPay is an all-in-one virtual corporate card and expense management platform for small business. And we allow finance teams to better manage, control, and streamline their spending across their organization. So what we've built is a very easy to use web and mobile application that allows a business to instantly issue corporate cards for their employees, pay bills, all within very strong controls and budgeting. And we allow them to automate a lot of their expense management workflows and administration work. How long has DiviPay been operating? DiviPay has been around since 2017. And in fact, we began our life as a consumer product and we've had a number of iterations of our business over the years, some tough moments where we've decided to pivot the business based on the traction that we had. And ultimately in 2019, stumbled upon this really white space in SME expense management. And really, small business have been neglected regarding financial services and products for a long time. Right. Uh, and a real need for our product in the market. You actually worked in large corporations like IBM and Westpac, didn't you? I did. I spent a number of years working at Westpac in various departments from IT security, engineering, and then ended up in the innovation space where I met my co-founder. And it was in that team that we were tasked with identifying potentially disruptive financial technologies and try and understand that how, how could we apply this to the bank to build new products and services for the organization. You know, we learned a lot of great skills about identifying customer needs, what their jobs to be done are, what problems that they have in their life, and how we might be able to build 
prototypes and minimum viable products around these problems using different types of technology. What's your advice for startups? I mean, uh, what are the big trends and sinkholes uh, that uh, businesses get into? Well, look, we've had a very typical journey as a startup. We're starting out with an idea for a product and we've always been very focused on the MVP process. So how do we build the smallest version of this solution that we can take to market and test with real customers? I think a trap that a lot of startups fall into is being very attached to their idea and thinking that their idea is the most important thing. But what is important is understanding what problems a customer has in their life, building a small solution around that, and then validating whether that solution has what's called product market fit. That is, do your customers adopt your product? Are they willing to pay you for it? And does it have uh, the growth potential uh, to make a, a successful company? So we've been very focused on you know, making sure that the things that we build have product market fit. And that's why we, you know, we started our life as a consumer product that ultimately didn't achieve product market fit and led us to have some really hard conversations internally about pivoting our business and constantly listening to our customers about what their needs are. And that's how we've you know, really landed on our product that we have today. And I think is really attributable to the success that we've had. Well, a lot of that's actually just common issues for any small business, really. For any small business, is actually... What is a customer's problem? And Absolutely. What, what service can I offer to fix it? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it really does apply to any business. At its core, it's understanding the needs of your customers, speaking to them regularly, understanding what problems they have, what solutions do they have today, and what workarounds do they have in place. You know, when we spoke to customers about their expense management workflows in their small business, we had tons of stories of manual workarounds, like employees paying for expenses out of pocket, you know, and, and being owed by their employer for long periods of time, sharing one or two company cards around the office. We have a, a funny story about a customer who had a photocopy of a credit card in the filing cabinet of about 30 different people. And it, eventually, you know, that, that corporate card was compromised they couldn't work out who was spending what. And just hearing stories of ways that people are trying to solve problems in their life and really honing on how could we do that better? How could we identify a solution that solves this particular problem for this customer in a new way? What sort of customers is Divi Pay attracting? Look, we've, we've got a product that works for you know, a really wide range of customers. We have customers with one to two employees on the smaller end, all the way through to, you know, medium-sized businesses with 500 to 1,000 employees. And I think that's a really interesting thing for us is that these expense management workflows are, are common things across any type of business, whether you run a trade business, whether you run a digital marketing company or a consultancy. Everyone is looking for ways to optimize and do things more efficiently. The bigger the company, we do find sort of our sweet spot is, is around 20 employees plus where that burden of administration work really becomes a little bit too much and finding ways to automate and control how expenses are made in your company really just becomes something that has to be done and a solution like ours is you know, perfectly designed for. So basically your customer base is fairly broad. 
It is. It covers really by definition that small to medium size market. Enterprise and corporates have had solutions for a long time, but it's really that small business that's been quite underserved. And you know, a lot of the the benefits that our product can be in a small business is that speed of onboarding. We onboard customers in under an hour where that customer they may have been in the seventh or eighth week of the application process with a big four bank. And so it's that really that lack of access to financial products that a lot of fintechs have set out to solve where through new technologies, new um, compliance and, and KYC processes that we can actually serve smaller customers that have, that have been unserved by large institutions uh, much more effectively. So how many do you have working there at Divipo? So we're, we're growing very rapidly. Last year, we were able to secure our Series A in, in capital funding, and that's really allowed us to, to grow the team very rapidly. We're currently 40 people. Uh, started the year at 20, so I've already doubled the size of the company and are rapidly hiring and should be close to 100 by the end of this year. You run very lean and you stay agile in that case. We do, we do. And majority of the platform was built with less than 10 people. And running lean, you know, is something that we learned from our time at the innovation team at Westpac about how to build minimum viable products and deliver the value that customers are looking for when you're building a, a startup. And I think this is interesting when you're building products and services where customers don't have alternatives. They're so in need of something that solves their problem that they're willing to put up with a solution that's not fully fledged, but really kind of solves that core problem that they're trying to solve. And that allows a startup to get into the market to achieve that product market fit and then begin to scale. And so we've kind of worked through that early stage cycle, transitioning into being that scale up size where we're really focused on, you know, how do we build a very well-rounded product, a very polished product as we sort of move up the market, attract bigger, more sophisticated customers. But being lean in those early stages are what enable you to move very, very quickly and to deliver that minimum set of features and functionality to solve that core problem for a customer. Now, as part of your recruitment, uh, you're looking at employee stock ownership plans, is that right? We are. Yeah, this is a really great initiative that has been improving, particularly for Australian startups over the last few years. Looking back 10 years ago, employee share option plans or ESOPs, uh, they're often referred to as, were difficult. It's something that's been pioneered by Silicon Valley for a long time. And the, you know, the sort of the tax breaks that have been happening here in Australia, and there were some recent announcements in this space as well, have made it a really appealing option for small companies to attract talent. And as many people are aware, the, the talent market is very strong right now. There's, there's a lot of demand for skilled people in all parts of the business, from engineering to sales to, to marketing. And for a small company that doesn't quite have that reputation yet uh, in the job market, finding ways to be able to attract these talented people is critical. And ESOPs are a way to do that. They also create great alignment between the business and the employee to sort of create that buy-in that the hard work that I'm putting into this business, I'm being rewarded through my remuneration, of course. We need to be competitive there. But we also need to add that extra incentive, that, that hard work that you know, is required to, to get a startup off the ground can be rewarded 
and you know, the success of the business is shared, not just with the founders and the investors, but also the employees are, who are at the coalface doing that really tough work to, to make it happen. We're also in a fortunate position to have a number of international investors on our board. And they're able to share the learnings of how are companies overseas structuring their ESOP plans because it, it, it can be hard to know, you know how much should I allocate to this particular employee? How do I think about the value that I'm creating for this, for this person? And often the, the most typical way is to do sort of a percentage of base salary, create a fairly even playing field for employees that if I come in at a, at a team member level, I should be attracting sort of this much value. If I'm coming in as a senior leader of the business, then you know I should be able to be incentivized by ownership in the company. Well, I mean, uh, can I just say though too, I think your model is probably better suited for smaller businesses because um, if I can say this, because larger businesses, and I'm thinking here of banks in particular, but uh, mm. larger businesses, say in financial services, they have their own systems and they've invested in their own systems and they're not going to chuck those systems over for a startup. Whereas smaller businesses don't have those. And so they'd be more inclined to go with your model. Would that be right? That's absolutely very true. And we, having worked in the innovation space for a long time, I'm very interested in the theories behind innovation. And I think what you've alluded to there is very much on point with some of the theories like the the theory of disruption. Mm. And that is established companies at the top of the market often have the, the products that they need at hand to build very bespoke systems to manage their expenses and manage finances within their company. Disruptive products like ourselves that come in at the bottom of the market can solve the needs of these customers that have really been neglected or, or ignored for a long time. And so, yeah, it's, it's when you think about the theory of disruption, it, it doesn't make sense to come in at the top of the market because when you compete with incumbents, if you're competing with SAP Concur, you're competing with Amex, these businesses have the war chest to be able to compete with a startup and really blow them out of the water. Where a startup should come into the market is to come in at the bottom of the market that is underserved to build their products and services over time where the incumbent is not concerned. They're not thinking about SAP Concur is not thinking about uh, businesses with five employees. You know, it doesn't make sense any financial sense for them to service those customers. But where startups can get traction is coming in at that bottom of the market, building great products and services, and then building up the value chain over time, where in a position in five to 10 years, they may be able to challenge those incumbents for those bigger businesses. Well, that's a very smart strategic advice, Russell. (laughs) uh, I'm sure a lot of startups and businesses will be listening out for that. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Liam. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist, Craig James. Well, Craig, what's happening in the market uh, for the week starting May the 9th? Well, there's not a lot of what you would call top shelf indicators, but there's there's still plenty to to watch out for, both in in Australia and also in terms of the United States. Probably Tuesday is one of the, the highlights we've got. The National Australia Bank Business Survey, we've got the final reading of retail sales for the month and for, for the quarter. We've got weekly consumer confidence figures and Commonwealth Bank releases its household spending indicator. So that's coming out on Tuesday. 
on Wednesday, the, the monthly reading of Consumer Confidence by Westpac and the Melbourne Institute. Then we've got Thursday with uh, tourist arrivals for, for March. We've also got an indicator from the Bureau of Statistics called the week, weekly payroll jobs and wages figures. Then on Friday, we've got um, new home sales and also the Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank, Michelle Bullock, you know, delivers a speech. So those, those are basically the, the highlights that we've got in terms of the Australian scene. The highlights in terms of the United States deal very much with inflation. Now, we had our inflation reporting period you know, sort of just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so the U.S. has won basically every month. And on Wednesday, the consumer price index is released. And on Thursday, you've got the producer prices. And then on Friday, you've got the, the trade prices, the import and export prices. So there's a, a mishmash of uh, data that will be you know, so the highlights over Australia and the United States. Probably, I think, you know, so one of the interesting ones will be to watch out for in terms of Tuesday the National Australia Bank Business Survey. So what do you expect to come out with the National Australia Bank Business Survey? Well, at the moment, we've got business confidence at a reading of 15.8. So that's the highest reading that we've seen in five months. And business conditions are a reading of 17.8, which is the highest reading that we've seen in nine months. Now, it's quite interesting at the moment where business conditions and confidence are doing you know, sort of quite well. If we look at consumer confidence, consumers seem to be a little bit more concerned about you know, some factors. And I think at, at the moment, when you look at businesses, they're a degree more hopeful that what we're seeing is fewer COVID cases are coming through. We've seen the, the recent cut in the fuel excess. I think that will be you know, one of the influences that will be reflected in the NAB business survey as well. And also the fact that um, Australian businesses have been doing very, very well. We know that in terms of the profit reporting uh, period. The companies have been reporting higher profits and the higher revenues, and uh, that's been offsetting you know, sort of the, the gain that we're seeing in terms of expenses. So it'll be interesting to see with what what has been going on you know, in terms of share market and interest rate speculation and inflation, whether the confidence is maintained by Australian businesses and business activity remains firm. So that's one of the ones which we'll be closely watching. We'll also take a bit of a peek at you know, the, the Wednesday, the Consumer Confidence Index. As I say, there's been a bit of a dichotomy between businesses and consumers. Business confidence is pre pretty good at the moment. If you look at the last reading of the Westpac reading of consumer confidence, that's a 19-month low and it's fallen for the last five months. So I think consumers have been you know, sort of a little bit jittery because of all the talk on the interest rates, the inflation rate, what's occurring at the petrol pump, some of the volatility in the share market, I think, yes, has been influenced as well. So they'll be watching just to see you know, sort of whether those two start lining up a little bit better or whether the divergence basically is maintained. It's interesting uh, that the US is reporting their CPI. Their, their last inflation figure came out at 8.5%. Where do you expect that to go? Yeah, 8.5% for, for the headline rate of inflation. And if you look at the core rate of inflation, 6.5%. So both those readings, whether you measure the headline or the core or the underlying measure, at the highest levels they were seen in 40 years. Now, there is some expectation that we're starting to see a peak in the inflation rate. And that's what we'll be really watching out for in terms of the figures coming out on Wednesday in the United States, whether there is evidence coming through of a peak in terms of inflation. So if that inflation rate ends up coming coming off, that will reduce the urgency for the US Federal Reserve to be lifting interest rates. So that one's going to be watched very, very closely. Uh, the producer prices as well, 
they've been soaring. If you look at the headline rate of inflation in, in on a producer level, a business inflation level, 11.2% for the headline and core rate up in the order of 9.2%. So we do know that you know, sort of, that inflation is very much a global issue at the moment. COVID has been affecting prices that COVID people get. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In COVID, you're sort of able to go into their workplace. As a result, production has been down, not meeting the demand for, for goods, and as a result, prices have been going up. And, of course, the other thing that's been going up is the, the price of fuel, again, related to COVID effects as well as the, the war in the Ukraine. So we do know it's a global situation, but we also know in the United States that activity levels are quite strong, uh, low levels of unemployment rate, you know, sort of good levels in terms of overall activity. But inflation is very much the focus point for the, the central banks around the world. And, and indeed, yes, that will dominate our attention over Wednesday and Thursday. Well, what, what was interesting with the profit reporting season, although companies were reporting higher profits, they were also reporting higher costs and that was the result of inflation. It, yeah, it certainly was. And, and of course, then it, the, the focus for uh, investors is to see what ability the individual companies that you've got invested in, whether what level of ability that they have to pass on those higher costs in terms of higher prices. And it has been very, very clear across the, the globe, particularly in terms of the United States and Australia, that uh, companies have felt confident that the cost levels have been rising, that they'll pass that through into higher prices uh, for, for consumers. Now, if the economy wasn't operating with uh, s- such uh, levels of activities, levels of strength, then uh, certainly businesses would be uh, less likely to want to pass through those uh, higher costs to uh, higher selling prices. But uh, that's been occurring at the moment. And we'll be watching very, very closely business surveys in particular to see whether uh, that price leadership or price setting strength uh, continues to remain in place in, in coming months and quarters. In terms of uh, the uh, consumer confidence, so that that was heading down. And uh, so where do you expect that to see that heading? I don't think we're going to see too much of an improvement in consumer confidence until we get a more settled situation. Settled situation in terms of interest rate levels around the globe, uh, what's happening with, with inflation, what's happening in terms of the share market. So we are at basically uh, an inflection point at the moment where the, what we, we see, particularly in terms of uh, activity in, in financial markets. So 
we'll be watching very, very closely in terms of those consumer confidence levels. Been very much affected by what's happening at the petrol pump. And of course, the, the recent cut in the federal budget by the federal government in terms of cutting the, the fuel excise has worked its magic in putting you know, sort of more dollars in people's pockets. Uh, more recently, we've had the uh, cost of living payments made to pensioners and other welfare recipients. Uh, so that should be boosting the confidence levels of that cohort you know, sort of as well. So there's a, yeah, a lot of uncertainty at the moment, a lot of things which are moving around the place. I think we'll need to get you know, sort of a little bit more of a settled environment before we get consumers confident again. Well, I think the key issue for consumers, and for that matter, business, is the uncertainty. And while business confidence is up, you, you kind of wonder how long it will take till the uncertainty starts impinging on that. Yeah, I, I suppose there's numerous scenarios that we can you know, sort of construct. You, you can imagine you know, if the war in the Ukraine you know, ended or there was uh, some form of ceasefire and we had continued improvement you know, in terms of COVID cases around, around the, the globe, perhaps even in terms of China. China's adopted, of course, a much more stringent policy in terms of COVID. It wants zero cases and it's been locking down some of its cities to, to be able to achieve that. If we get resolution, particularly in terms of COVID and the war in Ukraine, then you'd say that we've got a totally different picture that we're looking at. And indeed, that's, that is a potential scenario that, that will manifest in the next couple of months. Unfortunately, we just don't know. We're certainly you know, about the war in Ukraine. But we do know over time that um, COVID cases are likely to be fewer that we will see uh, less impact in terms of supply chain issues and, which have been causing prices to rise right the way across the globe. So you're saying ultimately the uncertainty will recede and who knows, that could start building back uh, consumer confidence. Yes, that's right. And I think it is the case that particularly if you're an investor, that you've always got to be forward-looking. In business, clearly, you've always got to be you know, sort of forward-looking and you've got to you know, assess the, the potential scenarios uh, that are going to be presented you know, in the coming months. Okay, well, Craig, look, thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the Chinese slowdown will weigh on the world's economy. China's stringent lockdowns to curb COVID-19 infections are taking a significant toll on the economy and roiling global supply chains with President Xi Jinping under pressure to deliver on pledges to support growth. The damage from shutdowns in April in major financial hubs Shanghai Auto manufacturing centre Shangkuchun and elsewhere was laid bare by the first official data for the month released over the weekend. Both manufacturing and services activity plunged to their worst levels since February 2020, when the nation imposed a range of restrictions amid its initial coronavirus outbreak centred in Wuhan, according to purchasing managers' surveys. China's challenges go beyond the latest lockdowns. The fallout from the war in Ukraine has pushed up costs for Chinese businesses and contributed to fading overseas demand for their exports. Regulatory crackdowns have hit high-growth sectors such as technology and education. Real estate, a primary driver of the nation's economy, went into freefall last year as developers buckled heavy debts and home sales slumped. Any sustained slowdown in China will be felt globally, depriving the world economy of one of the most dependable engines when inflation and war are raising recession fears in the US and Europe this year. The US economy shrank at 1.4% annual rate in the first quarter, data released last week showed. 
China was projected to account for a quarter of global economic growth in the five years through 2026, according to data released by the International Monetary Fund last year. And stagflation is again on the cards. After the double shock of COVID-19 and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, inflation rates have exceeded expectations, surging to their highest levels in decades in many countries, while economic growth forecasts are rapidly deteriorating. The prospect of stagflation's return strikes fear into policymakers because there are few monetary tools to address it. Raising interest rates may help reduce inflation, but increased borrowing costs would further depress growth. Keeping monetary policies loose, meanwhile, risks pushing prices higher. Most analysts and economists, including the IMF, do not expect the rerun of the bad old days of the 1970s, a decade of economic blight that caused pain to households and business alike. Inflation is not yet as high as it was back then. More central banks are independent, and fiscal support is shielding the most vulnerable. But just as the oil crisis reverberated throughout the global economy in the 1970s, so has the double blow of pandemic and war put unprecedented pressure on the supply of goods and services around the world today. Even before war broke out in Ukraine, prices had risen to multi-decade highs in many countries, including the US, the UK and the Eurozone, as the pandemic disrupted supply chains, boosted demand for goods and resulted in accommodative monetary policies and expansive fiscal stimuli. And the Reserve Bank of Australia is set for a string of interest rate rises over the next year, potentially taking the cash rate to 2.5%, as the bank indicated Australia's inflation outbreak will not be brought under control until mid-2024. The RBA is forecasting inflation to reach 6% this year. Strengthening inflation prompted the central bank on Tuesday to raise the official cash rate by 25 basis points to 0.35%, the first such rise since November 2010, and the second time rates have risen during a federal election campaign. The other time was during John Howard's unsuccessful bid to win re-election in 2007. Three of the four big banks have passed on the first interest rate increase in more than a decade to borrowers. The move came as little surprise to financial traders, who had priced in around a two-thirds probability of the RBA raising rates this month. This is the first step on the long march to a much higher cash rate. Markets are pricing in the virtual certainty of another rise in June, taking the cash rate target to at least 0.5%, with the NAB expecting the cash rate to peak at 2.6% in 2024. Runaway inflation left the RBA with little choice but to hike rates in May. This rate hike will be the first of many over the next six months, as the bank tries to curtail historically high inflation. Under circumstances, it was surprising that they didn't hike more aggressively. Supply chain disruptions and the Ukraine war has pushed inflation to its highest level since the introduction of the GST in 2000. Ignoring the GST, an intentional policy-driven spike in inflation, we haven't seen economic-driven inflation this high since December 1990. Australia is dealing with something that simply hasn't been part of the national economic discussion in a long time. And one in 25 properties in Australia will be effectively uninsurable by 2030 due to worsening extreme weather caused by climate change, according to a study released by the Climate Council. In the worst affected areas, such as the seat of Nichols in Victoria, the figure is far higher with 27% of properties found to fall into this high-risk category. In the seat of Richmond, on the north coast of New South Wales, 20% of properties are considered high-risk. Flooding from rivers was found to be the most common risk to Australian properties, followed by bushfire and then coastal inundation from sea level rise. The study, conducted by Climate Valuation, a company that provides climate risk analysis to property owners, includes a map that allows readers to view data on the risk under different greenhouse gas emission scenarios to their suburb, electorate, or local government area for the years 2030, 2050 and 2100. 
and twin threats of accelerating inflation and extreme weather events will heap pressure on Australia's major insurers in the coming year, including when it comes to reinsurance negotiations, with global reinsurance giant Swiss Re warning prices must lift to match the substantially higher risks at play. Swiss Re last week forecast a stagflation-like global economic environment for 2022-23, characterised by higher inflation and lower real GDP growth, and tipped the chance of a global recession over the next 12 to 18 months at 20 to 30%. The impact on home insurance will be higher construction prices, a scenario already playing out across the east coast of Australia, following weeks of heavy rains and flooding earlier this year. This could be a tipping point for the nation's general insurers, with a big question mark over their profit outlook as they grapple with spiralling reinsurance costs. And Brad Banducci, the boss of supermarket giant Woolworths has left the door open to further price increases as some of its largest suppliers are poised to request price bumps for a second time in coming months as they battle rising input costs. About 40% of Woolworths Australian supermarket suppliers have asked for an increase to prices. This represents 50% of its sales, which jumped 5.4% to $11.43 billion in the third quarter. And Future Fund Chair Peter Costello has warned investors to brace for a challenging and volatile future as central banks move to raise rates to address inflation and the sovereign wealth fund post negative returns for the March quarter. Costello said investors should expect lower returns for longer with rising inflation, higher interest rates and geopolitical uncertainty combining to create ongoing market uncertainty. Australia's sovereign wealth fund suffered its largest quarterly loss in two years amid renewed geopolitical and monetary policy risks. Future fund lost 1.5% in three months to March 31, the biggest drop since the same period in 2020, causing its main fund to shrink to $201 billion from $204 billion. In a portfolio update, the Future Fund set up to cover future superannuation liabilities of public servants said global equity markets turned down sharply in the March quarter, due in part to higher interest rates around the world. Australia's sovereign wealth fund suffered its largest quarterly loss in two years amid renewed geopolitical and monetary policy risks. At the same time, the fund reduced its cash holdings as allocation into Australian and developed market stocks and so-called alternative assets increased, the statement said. In addition, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has added to risk for international investors, said Peter Costello, the former Liberal Treasurer and now Chair of the Future Fund he created in 2006. And Australian software billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks has made a dramatic $600 million market raid on Australia's biggest coal generator and polluter, AGL. At 11.28%, he is now AGL's largest shareholder and is vowed to oppose its proposed demerger and fast-track its exit from coal. Cannon-Brooks said he expects AGL Energy's demerger to be voted down in a move that would force the entire board of the power giant to quit. Croc Ventures, the private investment firm of Cannon-Brooks and his wife Annie, hired brokers to stand in the market late Monday to snap up his stake, which may be enough to thwart the demerger vote at the upcoming shareholder meeting in June. Cannonbrook said in a letter to the AGL board that Grock was now the biggest shareholder in AGL, which has had few institutional backers because of its massive fossil fuel exposure, and declared there was a better future for the company. And Qantas says it will return to profitability in the next financial year as leisure and corporate travel markets roar back to life and begin to outstrip pre-pandemic passenger levels. The resurgence has paved the way for the airline to order a dozen new Airbus 351,000 jets to commence non-stop 19-hour flights from Sydney to London and Sydney to New York by the end of 2025. Qantas has unveiled ultra-long-haul aircraft for non-stop flights from Sydney and Melbourne to London and New York, but experts have questioned the impact on emissions and mental health. 
Launching in late 2025, the $6 billion plan involves new 350,000 aircraft specially configured with extra premium seating and reduced overall capacity of up to 238 passengers. The 20-hour trip from Sydney to London will be the world's longest direct commercial flight, but the airline plans to charge additional fares in a bet the passengers will pay a premium to avoid a stopover. Qantas claims the planes will be 25% more fuel efficient than previous aircraft and will feature well-being zones for passengers to move about in the cabin. Experts said that while not having to take off and land for the stopover will save some fuel, this will be mostly offset by the weight of all the extra fuel needed for such long flights. They also cautioned that the negative effects of repeated long-haul flying on crew members' circadian rhythms would be more pronounced on the longer flights, and deep vein thrombosis risk would be elevated for passengers. The Transport Workers Union was critical of Qantas' spending on new aircraft after thousands of employees lost their jobs during the pandemic. And Australian coffee lovers are not alone in facing sharply rising prices for a caffeine fix. Across the Northern Hemisphere, from, Austra- from America to Britain to Japan, cafe patrons are already shelling out well over $5 for a flat white. In any part of the world where a flat white can be found, cafes are facing the same perfect storm as in Australia. Soaring coffee bean prices, supply chain squeezes, staff shortages and rising energy bills. In London, the price of a good flat white has recently crossed the £3 mark. It's getting pretty common to pay £3.20, that's $5.70 Aussie, for a takeaway, even more for a sitting. In Tokyo and Paris, the price of a top drop can surpass $6.50. The raw data tells the story. In February, Britain's retail price index for coffee and other hot drinks shot up 11.5% from a year earlier. In the US, March consumer price index, the coffee price surge was 11.2%. Starbucks in the US raised its prices in October and in January, and CEO Kevin Johnson says that they will rise again. In Britain, Starbucks flat white, which is supposed to be the cheap end of the market, is £2.90. That's about $5.20 Aussie. Last month, the hugely popular Starbucks Japan put up its prices by between 10 yen and 55 yen, that's 11 cents and 60 cents Aussie, on coffees that typically cost about 300 yen, half the price of an upmarket Tokyo flat white. In Singapore, there is a two-track coffee culture, the local brew versus European. The European has always been more expensive and the famous Raffles Hotel has taken the price differential to new heights. A coffee in its sumptuous lobby bar will now set you back 12 Singapore dollars at $12.20 Aussie. And the Morrison government gave $1.1 billion in personal protective equipment, or PPE contracts, to Aspen Medical, which is now part of an international criminal probe into corruption and money laundering, as ABC's Four Corners reported. Aspen Medical actually had no experience in a deal this big. The deal was worth $500 million more than any other government supplier at the time. Interestingly, Health Minister Greg Hunt also penned a letter of recommendation for Aspen Medical when the deal was being made, but the letter was open-endedly addressed with no date on it, leaving its use ultimately up to the company to decide. Former Health Department Secretary Stephen Duckett called it dangerous and extraordinarily unusual for a minister to do so. Aspen Medical had a combined loss of $7 million in 2018-19, but profits skyrocketed to $420 million in the last two years. And the number of gambling ads on the television in Victoria has skyrocketed in the past five years, new data has shown. Young men between the ages of 18 and 24 were the biggest sports betters in Victoria. A report from the Nielsen Institute found gambling ads have increased by 253% since 2016. The research commissioned by the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation showed there were an average of 948 gambling ads broadcast daily on free-to-air TV in Victoria in 2021. 
The data showed the gambling industry spent $287.2 million on advertising in Australia last year, an increase of $15.9 million from 2020. And Transurban will not diversify into other transport modes such as railways or airports, but is keen to expand its toll road operations into associated businesses like road user charging, Chief Executive Scott Charlton has told investors. The company is eyeing opportunities to operate road user charging systems, including using price charging signals to manage traffic flows. It also wants to develop more apps and other services for drivers, particularly autonomous and connected cars that can communicate with infrastructure. Transurban is urging drivers to consider EVs. Mr Charlton already drives one and is looking for 11 motorists in Victoria to document their experience trying them out on the state's road. It is calling for applications for motorists who want to test drive a Nissan Leaf for a week and receive a $1,000 travel voucher in return for documenting their experience through videos and photographs as part of a program to create new advocates who can join us in championing EVs and encourage others to give them a go. About 10% of the traffic on Transurban's A25 toll road in Montreal already consists of EVs. An ANZ banking group earned a $3.1 billion cash profit, up 4% year-on-year for the first half. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Gustavo Caroga, the Vice President and GM of Mobiquity for APAC. Mobiquity partners with the world's leading brands and banks to design and deliver compelling digital products and services. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about interest rate rises. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.